0: And you are listening to Field of Fire. <laughs> How's it going, guests? Welcome back. Everybody that probably has listened to the previous two episodes kinda knew this was coming. I'm super excited to have Brett Casper on this week, aka Relocked on the Discord channels, and he has been extremely passionate about sharing his monster apocalypse knowledge, and he has an encyclopedic, in-depth understanding of game theory, and so we are going to explore both of those with Brett. Brett, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to have you on. You recently joined the Field of Fire media team.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'll be doing some articles. That's uh, that's really exciting. Getting uh, some more of my rambling uh, thoughts out to the uh, community at large.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm really excited for it, too. I know that... It's kind of an understatement to say that you're going to be dropping some articles on us. Anybody who's familiar with Relox knows that he is the author of the sacred text of Monpok, as we call them. He wrote a very lengthy um, initial rundown of his thoughts of Monsterpocalypse and how he viewed the game and going first versus going second and presented a lot of the theory that we discuss in the Monsterpocalypse communities. And he's also just finished a author introduction article that will drop as his first article for Field of Fire Media. And he'll also be the first author of some of these new authors joining the team who will be producing articles as well. So you can expect several of them to come. And Brett is going to be our banner man. He is going to lead the guide on forward into the fray.
1: Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting. I'm uh, I'm happy to contribute some content to the community. That was definitely the biggest thing I missed coming into Monpoc from other games.
0: Mm. I can relate to that, too. So we did briefly mention your author article, but for anybody who hasn't read it, because this is going to drop the same time that this podcast does, why don't you give us a little bit of background about you, Brett, where you come from, what you do, and how you do it? All right, um. So I I started gaming
1: kind of, I think, like a lot of people my age. You know, about 10 or 12, I got my first uh, Warhammer starter set, which was sick. Um, And then I fell immediately in love with tabletop gaming. Like, uh, I loved the spectacle. I loved going into the game store and seeing all the different tables and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what, like, got me in. Um, As I got older, I'm I'm one of those people who can't play games casually. Like I'm (laughs) I'm constitutionally incapable of it. I have to get competitive with it. So I started Kind of doing like the local and regional Warhammer scene, which was like, you know, I wasn't terrible at it, kind of a mid player, and from there, like, uh, I kind of bounced around with that for a little bit, and then I moved into uh, War Machine and Hordes, and I've actually I played in all three editions albeit briefly in a couple. And once again, like, uh, I kind of got in kind of casually and then realized that, like, I just, I can't do anything casually. So I got competitive with it and just, you know, got the stuffing kicked out of me at local tournaments by, like, uh, some WTC players and stuff, because I I didn't realize quite what I'd signed up for with that competitive uh, War Machine thing. But the big thing for me was that, like, this was the time when I went from reading just, like, casually on internet forums to actually trying Mm. to, like, study the game and actively get better at it. So I was like, I was listening to tons of podcasts. I actually, I listened to you back in the RFP days. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, that was, you know, kind of, I'm kind of one of those people who always has something in zeer, So like mm-hmm. I would listen to just hours and hours of uh, War Machine content. But then I, I had a career change and like, I just, I have very limited time and minis gaming just wasn't mm-hmm. working. So I moved back to my other love, which is Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like I'm a content junkie, and like magic is awesome for that. You want to read articles from pro players? There's tons of them. Definitely. And so like I, uh, I kind of moved into FNM because that worked with my job hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like you know I kind of got tired of losing at FNM or being like a two-two player. So I was like, how do I get better at this? Like, started reading all the content, and playing better decks, which uh, which definitely helped.
0: Yeah, good cards go a long way to winning
1: yeah I, I learned that one uh, really well it was uh yeah it was a, a nice feedback loop for me but i also found that like some of the the game theory i'd picked up from war machine like really mapped itself well into magic so like some concepts that Definitely. i'd struggled with earlier now were really easy um and then like i i got more competitive with it and more competitive with it and then my uh, my local gaming store closed mm. uh, a buddy and, buddy and I had just started kind of playing Monpok at that time and like mm-hmm. kind of got our second wave of orders right around when my game store closed. Uh, and we, you know, I, I played the game, I saw the depth and like I fell directly in love. So i mm-hmm. uh, been all in on Monpok since.
0: Nice. <laughs> I can definitely relate to some of the things you said. Um, firstly, War Machine takes a huge time commitment, um, both to play wow. and to learn. And it's definitely one of those media things where you do need to constantly absorb podcasts and read articles and play games to close the loop on this knowledge, understand it, and remember it. Because if you don't apply it and remember it, then a few games you're going to be like, oh, I remember this after I got beat by it, not before. I also think it was interesting that you mentioned that some of the strategy and uh, game theory that you learned in War Machine – translated to Magic, because I've actually heard the opposite true of Magic players who come to War Machine. They say, man, a lot of the things that you learn in Magic are really corollary to what you do in War Machine. You just have to look at it in a different way. So can you point out some things that you took from, from War Machine to Magic that you thought were good game theory? Uh, so like the, the biggest one for me was learning
1: like uh, h- how a metagame works and how it adapts and evolves. Mm. that was a thing i'd really struggled with uh in my my bad f&m grinder days uh earlier <laughs> on
0: yeah definitely
1: um and just like tracking war machine for like i think it was two or three years was my my big push in there and yeah just seeing how the meta would shape and evolve around releases and kind of learning like good the concepts of good and bad matchups and what could make something a good matchup or a bad matchup mm-hmm um, and also there's some like some really core stuff, like being able to sacrifice pieces for an advantage, mm-hmm. which is like a huge thing for magic.
0: I agree. I think that's where a lot of my initial game theory came from is that I started as a kid playing chess. You know, before I ever got to play any other tabletop game, I played chess. And so the concept of the trade was one of the most important things I ever learned in chess was not only, How to trade properly, but how to get more out of your trade than your opponent does. And how sometimes the best trade is tempo, and sometimes the best trade is board space, and sometimes the best trade is the one that you don't make at all. And learning all of those things, when I went over to Magic, it was like, I don't think you understand how this is going to trade out. So you play that, I play this, you play that, I play this, I killed that. You kill this. Now who's left with what? And because I was always going down that decision tree playing chess, it was natural for me to do that in War Machine. And when I came over to Monster Apocalypse, it was one of those games that I felt lended itself more cleanly than Magic, more cleanly than War Machine to that same type of thinking. Is There is a very intrinsic value to the trade in Monster Apocalypse. And so it's a game theory that if you get good at it, You'll get good at any game you play, but especially Monsterpocalypse.
1: Yeah, I think um, Monpok is a hugely tempo-based game right now. Um, that is the article I'm currently working on. And yeah, that, that concept of trading is like intrinsic to the tempo of the game. Because everything we do in Monpok is a resource trade. Mm-hmm. And so every play needs to be thought of in terms of like, what resources did I trade here? Did I trade board space? Did I trade for power dice? Did I trade for damage for monster health? Did I trade Mm -hmm. for a monster activation? Like these are all core
0: questions. And you mentioned board space, which I think is really important coming from War Machine that isn't as corollary as it is in other games. So with War Machine... Because it's a meet-in-the-middle game, and for the most part, the back of the board is only explored by certain types of skirmishers or really high-mobility models, the predictable pattern of where the battle is going to take place basically happens in the same bubble. But because Monster Apocalypse is a very dynamic game where you can use and are encouraged to use your opponent's side of the board as much as possible, you have to understand that board position is probably even more powerful than the trade of say uh units
1: uh yeah absolutely i i think that um one of like the the core parts for me leveling up was understanding that every decision you make in mon Ma matters right where a unit yeah. stands which unit is summoned these are all equally important questions because if you summon the right unit and put it in the wrong spot you've done
0: nothing absolutely or gone, man, if that guy was one square over and, had, and clearly had the opportunity to, you can't stand there. And ugh, I've had that conversation one too many times. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's a that's a great example where you look at a piece, you know, at the end of your, at the start of your monster turn, and you're like, if that unit had just been one space farther forward, it would have been perfect for this play. And being able to, to make that, to, to see the game that step ahead is very mm-hmm. important.
0: So let's talk about that step ahead, because you were already in that mind space coming over to Monster Apocalypse. You knew you wanted to play it competitively. Like you said, you don't do anything not competitive. You're just kidding. You don't have it in you. I'm the same way. Like, why do it? I'm going to do Parcheesi, the most uh, aggressive Parcheesi game you've ever played. You want to play some Tic-Tac-Toe? Don't get me started on Connect Four. Connect Four champion.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, like I'm a a terrible person at board game
0: night because, like, I have to win. Exactly. Um, And I don't have to win in that when it comes to new players, I'm all about letting them win. But if you have come to meet me at this game as an equal, boy, you're in for a treat. So with that, you set out and trying to create the lexicon that we uh, are using to read over to talk about game terms. So I want to talk about the content of that article a little bit and build on that because What you have written already uh, explains so much of the way both you view the game and the way you think, and puts simple terms to a lot of things that people need to understand about the game to play it correctly. We talked earlier about going first and going second, right? So your article stands very strongly on that, but as a player stepping into Monpoc, If this is a game that's you know whether it's your first minis game because it's very branded as being very easy for that or it's your most competitive game this is one of the most important decisions you'll end up making but when i came to playing Monpoc first nobody talked about it with me up for, up front there were plenty of things for them to mention but it being such an important option of the game it was something that i learned about After I had learned about what a lot of the models did, after I had learned about the kind of tempo of a lot of the resources, after I had learned about the fact that one player gets to choose the map and one player gets to place monsters first, all of this, yeah, you kind of learn it as you go, but it wasn't that, like, I can't tell you how many games I've come down to where the fact that my opponent went first, mean they won, because they had one hit point versus one hit point, and that extra tempo or that extra opportunity that they get for going first was the Game Breaker. And then I've had plenty of games where I went second and went, this is so strong. Getting to choose the map is so powerful. Getting to be able to react to my opponent's placement and refuse flank or whatever it is I choose to do, that game is so powerful. And I came away walking away from the decision and debate that a lot of new players have is, which is better? And your article very succinctly goes through both sides of that and creates a thought pattern for that. So that's what I wanted to go through. Oh, sure. Uh, Yeah. So the the actual uh, impulse to create the article uh,
1: happened from a match or a a night in TTS3 when uh, Nick or BoxyMD and I were were hanging out in chat and we just watched a game with some of the newer players and we were talking about, you know, this person didn't, you know, they didn't play second position properly uh, and they got stomped because of it and one of the the newer players piped up and they're like okay so how do you play second position properly and we spent about an hour just going through some real basic stuff about it and i realized that like these were conversations we were having in the voice chat that nobody was getting outside of it it was it was lost information effectively mm-hmm. so with with that in mind i was like all right i need to i need to actually write this and like codify it for the players who are coming into the competitive scene because, like, nothing feels worse than getting beat because you didn't know, like, what was expected. Totally. Um, so, so yeah. So, there's a couple of, like, main advantages we we we'd kind of outlined about going first and going second. Um, going second, like, the, the biggest difference, I think, and the thing that people undervalue a lot, is the informational advantage you have. Uh, so, like, first player has to, you know, you get to see the shape of their building draft. While you're still doing yours, uh, you get to pick the map so you know what map it's going to be. You get to deploy your monsters counter to theirs, and you get to disrupt their power. That was a a common complaint at the time was that, like, first player is the only one who gets to disrupt power, and we were all like, no, no. If you just take the time on your unit turn to attack their units, you're actually disrupting their power first, and that's a really powerful part. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. So you mentioned um, map selection, and that's one that I want to explore a little bit more. So talk to me about proper map selection. Um,
1: So with the maps we have available right now, uh, I think there's actually only like two right choices. Um, And the the two currently are Calamity Park and Obliteration Boulevard. Um, And the reason for this is because of how they're laned. Both of those have kind of uh, like very, they have kind of like a closed off middle. So if monsters want to affect both sides of the map, they have to separate, which gives you the advantage of being able to kind of pick pick on one, isolate them, and force a 2v1. The other thing to like look at is also like what your opponent is playing. Because like some monsters on some maps are insane. So like uh, I'll use a, an example. There's a, a TTS player who loves Destruction Junction, which mm-hmm. is like a super cool map. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get really aggro with it and uh, like do lots of damage because of all the double foundations. But if you're playing into a monster with Demolition or Devastation or uh, Fling, uh, you cannot pick that map. Because of how close all the uh, the power bases are, how mm-hmm. much farther forward, uh, the enemy monster can very easily get to your power base. But yeah, so like there's actually a lot to map selection. Um, but I think that just... If you're talking, like, on a, a real surface level, the best thing to do is pick maps that kind of force the enemy monsters to separate, uh, because then if they want to disrupt your power base, you you get good options to go to, like, force that one that 2v1, which is just mm. naturally in your advantage.
0: Interesting. So what are your thoughts on Isles of Annihilation?
1: Uh, it's a great map for 1v1. I wouldn't pick it in 2v2. And why is that? Uh, so because the power base is so... Um, so condensed, right? You only have the four four yellow foundations. Uh, you don't have a lot of powerful buildings, especially in a junk meta. And uh, it, it's a very easy map to cross and deal damage, and like dis- disrupt the power base. Well, it's, it's actually Absolutely. worse than... like like I, uh, The other problem with it is that because it's foundation limited, you mm-hmm. can actually end up in situations where you just don't have enough damage to finish out the game.
0: Mm, so it goes to time?
1: Yeah, it goes to time. Or... or uh, like there's some monsters that really take advantage of it. Mm. You end uh, inc- up in
0: a slight slap fight, and they're better at the slapping.
1: Yeah, or like incinerus, where there's there's literally <laughs> no sources of damage on the map at the end of the game.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I love incinerus so much, but I have been in that situation before. Not gonna lie, it's kind of
1: uh. uh, incinerus was my 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 big find coming into competitive monpok actually. Yeah. Mm. I was his champion from the start. I had a, a few arguments on the Discord about his playability. I think history has vindicated me.
0: <laughs> well, then you'll be absolutely delighted, uh, audience, to find out that relocked is going to be involved in our Monpoc radio show. And since he was the champion of Incinerous, I mean, he might just have to be Incinerous. <sighs>
1: I don't know if you, you all want to listen to my voice as a main character. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Um, when I was growing up, I did not want to talk to anybody. I wasn't much of a talker. I'm dyslexic as hell, and it carried over a lot into my speech in that I would get words backwards like and be speaking out of order. And it took a lot of very focused and constant uh, performance To make that go away. And I was on stage, my mom used to put me in plays, like all kinds of crazy stuff growing up, so that I was always out there speaking, and I hated it. But now, I've recorded hundreds and hundreds of podcasts of me just speaking, and I wouldn't be here without all those opportunities. And when we started the Riot Quest radio show, I'll let you in on a little secret, listeners. Uh, Zosha Simpson had never done any kind of acting or anything like that before, according to her, or anything at least to this level of production. And so she was coming into a group of seasoned actors with some actual professional voice actors in the mix joining our crew And she's the main character. She has the most dialogue and she is the one who does the most of the exposition to tell you what's going on. And from episode one, it was apparent to her that this was going to be difficult and it was a challenge. By our most recent episode where the uh, ship blips out of reality and teleports to somewhere else, she's leading the charge in such a way that I was just blown away that she wasn't a professional voice actor. She was in it, you know, in ways that I never even thought possible. And so if you come in and in episode one you just happen to – maybe we'll start you out as a, a – oh, I know. So in the first episode, I'll give you listeners a little hint. Um, there is a conversation happening between the Grand Marshal of the Zircola block and a courier who brings them a very interesting piece that they find at one of their reclamation sites. Now, that courier only has a few lines. <laughs> he brings in the package and asks for his tip. But, man, that might be the perfect part for you, Brett. And if you slam it, maybe next week the courier becomes incinerous. <laughs>
1: well, I think the courier sounds perfect.
0: Oh, right. Well, and that's the thing is anybody who is interested in doing something like this or really likes Montpaca and wants to come do voice something, I don't just need voices for Defender X and Sky Sky Sentinel. I need voices for XO armor pilots. I need voices for MR tank drivers and gunners. I need helicopter pilots. I need ground control because, you know, guard bases actually have people in them, you know. So uh, Russian accents, man, if there are people that either A – have a real Russian accent, or B, have a good Russian accent, I want to hire you because uh, Zerkola is going to – I don't have a Russian accent. I'm going to tell you that right now. I can't do it. I sound like Borat. Like people have straight laughed and told me not to do my Russian accent when I tried it. They were like, that's insulting. Just stop. (laughs) So I'm going to need salvation so that, you know, somebody out there is going to have to rise up and become Grand Marshal Ivan because I don't think I can do it myself. Total derailment, but that gave us a little break from the super heady topic that we were coming out of, and I think we're just about to go into some follow-up from that. So take us from the understanding that we were talking about with tempo and going first and going second. What do you consider when you're sitting down to the table and you're considering going first or going second? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, both have great options, but what does relock do? So, uh,
1: I'm a person who prefers to play from first. Um, I would much rather be the proactive player and setting the tempo, uh, rather than the person who has to react to it and try to adapt to the tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, I also prefer, a, like, a, a, just like a personal preference, is a, I like disruptive monsters or fast monsters. I like to be able to eat a lot of board space very quickly.
0: hmm well, and that's pair consideration, too, and that, you know, we kind of talked about locking other people's monsters out with maps or anything like that, if they have a certain pair, uh, or picking because it's important for power generation. But now you're also saying, based on my pair, I like to go first because of aggression, because of, you know, my play style. So let's explore that some more.
1: Uh, sure, yeah. So, like, uh, I'm definitely an aggressive player. Yeah. Um, the monsters I, I tend to pick are either very disruptive, but the the real unifying thing is I'm a player who loves the one v one. If I feel like most of the time I can trade ahead and get into that one v one, my uh, m- my monster play from there is is substantially improved. But like uh, some other players like uh, a boxy is a, a notable example who favors like really defensive monsters. He prefers going second, he has a, a very reactive style and he's very good at it.
0: That's interesting. I tend to be right down the middle, to be honest with you, and not in play styles in that I play both of those styles a lot, specifically aggro and defense. But I feel like the game kind of in most games break down into aggro styles, defense styles, control styles denial styles and prepared styles basically being ready for the meta having answers for things you expect to see that's not that's a whole style by itself that is very difficult to play because it's like rube goldberg sometimes you look at that list and go this doesn't make sense and then they just happen to have an answer for everything you put down that's that prepared style you can play a play style if you prefer it, but any good player plays every play style because the game presents styles to you and then you can choose different styles. But if you only acknowledge one style, then you're always going to get beat by the style that you don't understand, you don't practice, or it comes up and catches your counter. And so you can't honestly consider the other styles until you start playing them because just like a meta knowledge, right? If you know the other person's list, you're going to be better at playing it. Well. How do you break a defensive player if you don't know how they have their defense set up? Where's the foundation and the cornerstone? How do you stop an aggro player if you don't know where to take the pressure off or where to pull the wind out of their sails? How do you stop a control player who's got you locked down? That's a very difficult question. You can go into a whole episode about counterplay.
1: Uh, yeah, and I I, th- I think it's important to make sure, and like I, I stress this, this in that article as well, that like you need to be able to play both positions because you don't mm-hmm. get to pick. So you need to make sure your list has tools for both sides.
0: Agreed. So when it comes to list consideration, you talked to us about you liking aggro. We already mentioned how much we both love Incinirus. What are some of the monsters that you consider and that those pairs for yourself as far as um, being strong in aggro, being aggressive, um, and pair with monsters like that?
1: Uh, so the the monsters that I would consider are, like really aggressive um, are like sprint monsters especially. Hammerclack is a great mm-hmm. example. Um, we've got a couple players who are famous for that turn one blitz them across the board and attack your monster. So you have to mm-hmm. watch that
0: in your deployment. Now be careful, blitz is an actual term. He sprints. It's true. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he, uh, he sprints. I have made uh, that mistake and been corrected recently. <laughs>
1: I, I should know better than to use that mistake because my favorite monster uh, on the Destroyer side is Mecha Maxim, who I would nice. also consider a fairly aggressive monster.
0: Definitely. If you can play him right.
1: <sighs> if you can play him right. He, he is so hard. Like there was, there was three months of me practicing him where I literally I felt like I was getting worse at the game. I was like, mm. I, I, am I bad at this? Like, or is this monster just that much smarter than me?
0: I felt for a while, when, because he was one of the first monsters I picked up, and I was like, I'm not unlocking this monster. This, I'm not doing it right. Like, I felt like I was, you know, spinning a plate on a stick while trying to balance a ball and, uh, you know, kick a hacky sack. And then after, I don't know, it was like 10 or 15 games where things started to click, and I started to realize, like, where he needed to be at various times in the game. Oh, man, he gets good.
1: Oh, he he's... The most mobile monster in the game, which is just, like, all kinds of advantage.
0: Hmm. So, go on. We talked about Mecha Maxim, uh, a little bit about Incinerous, and Hammerclack. Who else we got on that list?
1: Uh, So, for other aggressive monsters, um, I think that, like, Glob and Kraken are Hmm. aggressive, but not in the way you would think they are. Let's talk about that. That's counterintuitive. Yeah, because they're they're both fairly slow monsters. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... But they're also both monsters with, like, incredible defensive tools that only get better the less power dice your opponent has. Mm. Uh, So slingshotting them way up the board and disrupting your opponent's power base often, like, leaves your opponent in a position where they just can't retaliate. Hmm. They just don't have the resources to come after Glob or Kraken.
0: Nice. And that's a good play to point out, too, because not only is it, hey, uh, this is a counterintuitive play... But I find that unless someone points out a counterintuitive play or you have it done to you, which is the worst version of this, you just don't realize it. You're just like, what? You're going to throw Glob all the way up there? What is Kraken doing? And then you see it at the end game and you go, now I see how I just got owned by that. So this was a very good point to point out. What are some other counterintuitive things that you learned as you were coming into this more competitive version of your understanding of the game?
1: Uh, securing buildings is, uh, is like tempo negative play. Okay, Uh, let's talk about that. So to secure a building, right, you have to look at what you're putting in and what you're getting out. Mm -hmm. So when we secure a building our like our best case scenario is we're going to put three units on it and we're going to get two power dice out and we're going to get access to those actions. Mm -hmm. Um, Actions are, are like tempo neutral for the most part because we're spending resources and getting marginal benefits. It's usually like a one for one pretty Mm. safe um but when we're putting three white dice into potentially getting two power dice what we're what we're saying is that we're going to invest extra resources this turn to hopefully be able to keep to generate extra resources over the next several turns Mm. because even like powering up with a double secure is often not enough power to like make a meaningful difference to your turn yeah uh so You you really want to be able to keep that secure for two to three turns, which means that we're like we're investing resources and then we're going to have to protect it. So we're going to have to invest extra resources to keep our opponent from actually disrupting it.
0: Now, I agree with you in that when it comes to getting power dice from buildings, I almost feel it's secondary, right? Like you do need power dice and securing them is one of the functions and ways to get it. But it's not the most efficient way uh, to use your models. And getting an individual power dice, like I've had turns where you're like, I get a power dice this turn, yippee and do. But if those three units had, you know, in turn on my unit turn, been proactive and killed units or gone and secured stuff and been in better board position, uh, I might have had more power dice. And so, it really becomes securing the right buildings that is the big play when it comes to buildings. Am I am I wrong on that? No,
1: not at all. It's it's about the action that you're getting. Mm, so let's talk about that. Uh, my act- The actual action that I think you should be focusing on most of the time is uh, city planning, because that just says I have access to any other action I need. Um, But beyond that, like uh, the buildings that I take for their actions are Mount Terra, uh, the Guard Base, and the Reclamation Facility.
0: Very important ones. I, I definitely want to talk about all three of those, especially the Reclamation Facility being so new. Let's go over the obvious ones first. So I think the guard base is the most obvious, and it's the one where make or break, man. I've had some re rolls change games. Uh,
1: yeah, the the tempo loss of, of missing an attack is is oftentimes insurmountable. I've seen so many games where like it's one missed attack on like a ninety five, ninety six percent, and they completely lose the game from that point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have had that happen Ugh. even just recently, where I was like this is awesome, this game's going to go so great, I move up, and as long as as this throw goes off and you end up back in this corner, I'm going to have a very strong first play here. And then I miss the first power attack going out of the gate, so my second monster is now out of position, and if it weren't for Faye being so generous and being like, well, let's just say this happens for the sake of playing this game, (laughs) I would have just lost in the beginning of the game, suddenly dead. But had I secured my guard base and left myself an action die... I wouldn't have been in that position, so it was my fault as a player for not putting myself in the proper position to make that play.
1: Uh, Yeah, that was actually uh, my experience in my most recent game as well. Uh, Marin bodied me in a practice game because (laughs) for a risky line.
0: Well, so the re-roll is super important. Glad it's out there. Uh, Let's talk about Mount Terra. So how big of a difference does two spaces really make?
1: So, on a monster turn, the answer is not usually a lot. Like, tech shift matters on a monster turn to be able to cross a unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially in, like, a, a media meta where there's a ton of static, like, you're you're not actually saving dice tech shifting versus just stepping twice. So, mm. it becomes much less important. But, like, the real power of Mount Terra is being able to move a monster on a unit turn. Uh, that, they, they're just, like, no overstating that value. Uh, it allows you to, like, pull monsters out of bad situations, uh, to move in on your opponent's monsters in a way that, that uh, negates any screening potential for them. Mm-hmm. Like, Tech Shift wins games.
0: Agreed. Definitely. One of my favorite plays is when you end up getting a unit turn after your opponent's unit turn and moving into a position where their units are in the ba- the wrong position. It's so sweet. You're just like, well, you're locked into a monster turn and guess what? You're not gonna align yeah screened on all sides got him <laughs> hopefully by your monsters unless they have disruption or some dumb stuff then by my monsters
1: um and and then the wreck facility is like a building that just might not be okay it's um it is <laughs> so much value
0: wreckville is real good so it has two abilities on its card i think we should go over both
1: yeah both are equally important Uh, So the, yeah, so uh, the first one is deconstruction, which is just once a turn, um, when you're securing the building, if you destroy another building, you get an extra power dice. And and like, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you, you kind of consider the dice totals that are actually being played with in the game, like a typical attack on a monster turn uh, is, is a two action dice, four boost dice and six power dice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's uh it's, the best numbers if you're like chaining multiple attacks together, because you get six on both, and it hits an eight on uh, a ninety-two percent.
0: Well, and it's important. So I think in the first kind of beginner introductory episode for Monster Apocalypse, two episodes ago, we talked about the four 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 breakdown being about eighty something percent. And so this, the two four six method, gives you better odds and is kind of a I think a very efficient way to be using dice on a monster turn.
1: Yeah, this is this is like the gold standard, right? If I power up for 10, I've got uh, I can make two of these attacks uh, with the dice as long as I destroy a building in the middle. So like, uh, and and once again, that 92 cannot be overstated. Missing mm. monster attack sucks. Uh, but because you're getting three back on this one, you can actually get like a little bit more creative. Uh, or just take a more efficient turn. Mm.
0: And that's good, too. Like you said, so with the extra power dice being in between there, is you know, you know I'm trying to generate damage and I'm gonna generate power dice in throwing monsters into buildings. So here's that little extra bump. and that little extra bump, being in between those two allows you more breathing room or you can throw more dice at it you know 92 percent is great but we just talked about how both of us have re-rolled 92 rolls that failed and so this gives you the opportunity to be more flexible turn a 92 into like this is a 99
1: yeah exactly it's uh it's gigantic for that but the the other ability on it i think is actually the more important one which is the action recycle uh so recycle just lets you spend an action dice to uh remove a a unit within five spaces uh if it's an enemy unit you have to take the action dice spent on the action uh and add three boost dice and hit the defense and then you get the cost back in power dice uh so there's like a, a couple really key things here uh the first is that it counters like, the aggressive uh, unit playstyle with the, the Moloch Berserker specifically. Um, so it doesn't actually destroy the unit, it returns it to the reserves, which means that you don't trigger Riled, which is, like, one of the key portions of the Moloch Berserker. Because then it typically reads, spend two action dice to spawn, spend two action dice to attack, get three power dice back. Mm. And if you're making that two power dice, just the two so- solely, you don't get the extra one back, uh, it it really like changes the efficiency for your opponent. Um, and the other unit is the Hellion because uh, <laughs> three boost dice hit a Hellion every time, and you get two power dice back for it. So it's just great.
0: Awesome. You know, I really like the Hellion's hit and run. I can't tell you how many times it's been cheeky that he just scoots over onto a power point after he marks a unit.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I use that play on Obliteration Boulevard a lot with the two power zones on the outside edges. Uh, those will usually be secured by flyers. So a heli and just being able to pop up, kill the unit with the Penetrator for like really efficient dice totals and then sit there has yeah. been uh, a big part of my game.
0: I agree. It was one of my first models to pick up, too, and that the first units that I traded it for came with my Lords of Cthulhu. And it is a, a unit that every game that I've played with it I'm like, oh, I found more value for this. Um, and how many other Speed 7 Destroyer units are there?
1: Uh, it might be the only one off the top of my
0: head. I think it's the only one. Um, and I was looking at that the other day, just marveling at the fact that it was the only one and almost a little terrified at how powerful that piece was knowing that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's irreplaceable in lists. Uh, definitely i was just going to say it also it's what allows destroyers to easily attack monsters where protectors have a little bit of a disadvantage there right now Mm. uh the pen being able to stack with flank meaning you get a minus two reduction makes that monster health total like or the monster defense total much easier to hit
0: well and there's a very strong unit that we both like that has flank on it as well
1: uh the destructomite is uh, a beast
0: we talked about the destructive Mind, and we could probably do a bunch on the destructive mind on how value that piece is. So let's talk about that and some other value pieces. What are some things that you feel are irreplaceable in your list right now?
1: Uh, so the the first one is crawlers. They're, mm. They so are, yeah they, they're definitely in contention for like the most powerful unit in the game. Uh, just being immune to a monster power attack. Like I don't think there's any other unit that is, uh, because they're swap proof. It also lets you like mm-hmm. take positions on the board that a protector player isn't allowed to take because the the power spaces will be within five or the secure will be within five of a power space,
0: mm-hmm. which is very
1: easy like swap bait.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's got a hardy defense line too, like a four four.
1: A four four that also destroys the unit that attacks it.
0: Yes. Uh, so that value in that trade is can't be understated.
1: Yeah, right. You're you're basically telling your opponent like, yeah, you get the power dice for killing my crawler, but all the action dice you spent there are wasted because you picked up no board position for it.
0: Mm. It's good.
1: Yeah. Uh, as long as he's on a power spot, he's got cover as well. Uh, because this is of... true. Yeah. Dig in. Dig in. Which is the 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 rule when you look at the rest of the crawler's card and you're like, yeah, of course he has that, but did he
0: really need it? It's true. That's probably the extra little bit, but. Hey, it's on there, and we play with it. So, and the, I I think when I'm talking about him holding the building to the cover is nice, but being able to really double dip on that secure too, because when I look at securing models, I look at models that have defensive tech like uh, Uncrushable or something like that, or I also want like that sweet three or four defense if I can get it. And he's like, oh, I have both. Yeah, absolutely. Um there, were, there was some thought that like Propo Walkers
1: might shunt him out of the meta a little bit mm. with uh, Defense 3 and Disruption, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just not as good.
0: Yeah, the, I the thing about Propo Walkers, I looked at it and immediately thought, I'm going to use this reroll so much, and I still have not used it.
1: Uh, that's actually the the reason I've been taking them, is uh, it, it takes a little bit more forward thinking to get Inspiration to trigger, uh, but it lets you take a bunch of like really like dice-light attacks. Because you've got that reroll in your back pocket to fix any, any bad luck. Interesting.
0: So and you use it with spars though, don't you?
1: Uh, no, that that is all Marin's tech. Um, uh-huh. I just I just run Chompers like a boring destroyer player.
0: <laughs> nice. So what are some other auto includes? We've we've talked about the crawler, we've talked about destructive Knight, we talked about the Hellion. Um and I think we could probably just say power pod and go from there. Yeah, the the
1: power pod is interesting for me right now because um, I, I think it's an auto-include, but it's actually got a little bit of competition. Mm. Um, like, th- the voider definitely isn't on the same power level, so so there's no consideration there. Um, but that's really the reason that I'm taking the power pod right now, is for the transport, really just to get a, a, an extra spawn space. I, uh, okay, so you don't have to bump them. Yeah, so, to, so I can save one bump to to deploy the uh, the pod instead.
0: That's cute. I like it. We've got some Martians in there. We've got some Planet Eaters. We've got some Lords of Cthulhu. We briefly mentioned some Zirkola Block. Uh, I know there's a few other factions that have some sweet specials out there. You probably reach for.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the the next auto include for me is the Moloch Berserker. Um, oh yeah. You, you can't leave home without it. Uh, three boost dice natively means that it can take some very safe attacks. Money uh berserk means that you get to make two attacks for the price of one so like getting some huge efficiency there Mm -hmm. um and then the the speed six high mobility means you can deliver it pretty much anywhere it needs to go especially in conduct in conjunction with underground networks
0: yeah absolutely and he goes forever if you're holding an industrial complex too like i feel like seven is just too far for him it's probably not fair.
1: Um, and and then like we mentioned earlier, like Riled is huge value. It means that your opponent has to kill it, because otherwise it's just sitting in their back line eating two units a turn. Mm-hmm. But doing so also gives you a power dice.
0: <laughs> it's, it's nice to have that trade, though, right? So now I'm giving you something, but you killing it is also going to give me something back. So I'm devaluing that trade a little bit for you.
1: Yeah, and that, that's the best way to think about it is because you're getting resources back, you're you're making the trade less efficient for your opponent, which means, you know, if, if we're playing the game correctly, we're we're continuously trading up or building tempo.
0: Mm. Now, trading up and building tempo are not the same thing. I think we should explore that a little bit. So, when when you're talking about that, you're talking about like
1: when we we take a tempo positive play. Like we'd have to to do some quick definitions here. Like I would consider a, a trade of action dice to power dice to be tempo positive when you trade one for one. Uh, over the course Mm -hmm. um so like we can take a tempo positive trade and still have it be the 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 worst of the trades uh so like an example of this would be uh say we've got an opponent with a a unit sitting on a powerpoint that's within five spaces of a unit uh controlling two buildings or helping secure two buildings so if we spawn uh a Taskmaster, and a Destructomite. Because that's a great little combo to spawn. Uh, and get them up to attack the unit on the Power power Zone. We'll also be able to kill the unit on the Double Secure. Which is like, sweet. Mm. We gained two Power Dice, we took three from our opponent, and it cost us... Uh, would have been five Action Dice. Which is like... So we've traded, you know, three of their Power Dice plus two of ours. We've traded five for five. This is a tempo mm. positive play. But... If our, if our opponent's going into a unit turn and they have an easy way to remove our Taskmaster, we've also just handed them two, two kills and a power zone. Mm-hmm. So, like, a draken Berserker gets a ton of blue dice, goes in there, kills the my berserks onto the power point, and kills the uh, the Taskmaster. We're, we've traded up on tempo, we're now behind on the game. So it's about identifying not just a tempo-positive play, but doing it on the correct turn as well.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned the Taskmaster, which I think is another one of those, I just struggle not to put on every list. Uh,
1: I, I think people are making a mistake if they build a list that doesn't have a TK option in it. So let's talk about the importance of telekinesis. Yeah, so telekinesis, like, the, the biggest deal is that it lets you, c- like, remove a unit from a PowerPoint without actually having to kill it. Mm. So, like... Def 4 models, which are like just almost impossible to kill on unit turns uh, efficiently, you can just instead, like, I'm gonna boop you and I'm gonna stand on that power point instead. Hmm. Uh, or uh, if you can boop them into a fire, you can kill them too,
0: which hmm. is delicious. All,
1: also, sick, yeah.
0: Some other things about the Taskmaster, he's another 4 4. We talked about that stat line being good. Bling on yes. his um, attack is also one of those where he can go up and bop two models and any unit or model that can get a two model trade, especially not having to be it like adjacent to that second one. Um, it's just, it allows him to have a great threat projection and still stand in somewhere relative safety. If you can get him in a great spot.
1: Uh, yeah, he, he's a, a unit that kind of does everything you want, right? He secures mm-hmm. buildings. Great. He's got great, uh, buffs in motivator. Uh, which coupled with like an industrial complex can get to some really silly things like speed eight berserkers <laughs> or speed nine hellions. You can just literally cross the map side to side. Yeah. Um, and then also yeah, TK uh, huge utility, and then fling makes him an incredible offense pe- offensive piece. And he has those two native boosts that you really want to look for in an offensive unit.
0: Beautiful. Are there any other auto includes that we didn't add to that list, or is it kind of dissolved from there into playstyle?
1: Um. So we didn't talk about the squicks. Okay, I like uh, squicks. And, yeah, and, and Destroyers, uh, I think, again, are making a mistake if they don't bring at least one squicks. Just Speed 6, Flight, uh, Def 2, and Disrupt. It's mm. it's just an incredible package.
0: Yep. I don't disagree at all. Um, it's well-rounded, and having access to Disrupt on a stick on a flying model is surprisingly versatile and useful. Especially, I really like it uh, with any of the Lords of Cthulhu models, because just being able to have him around, mm. delicious.
1: Yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of squicks for, like, uh, screening monsters.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was thinking of, I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure we'll summon a meat slave with Cthulhu Grosh, but it's a great second option after the meat slave's gone.
1: Uh, yeah, or, or gravitating them out to, like, make a ne- another attack. Uh, worse is not terrible tech with olgoth
0: you're right you're absolutely right they're good gravid targets too if you end up have somebody that's gonna put you in a multiple attack situation too because you just insta debuff them for attacking you yeah and
1: and like just uh being speed six like it's not as good as some of the protector options with all their their fancy speed seven Mm -hmm. but like it'll get you most places on the board uh Flight means that they can they can be your uh, your screens when you're on fire, um, and they're also like really good just at sitting in the center of a, a three unit formation on a back line.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so the the squix is great. Um, we covered all destroyer units, other than the dragon berserker, who is very uh, similar in how it functions to the. Moloch Berserker, but are there any other guard or not card, but um, protector units that you feel are those auto include reach fours?
1: Yeah, so the Dragon Berserker. Um, I'm a huge Shadow Rider apologist. Um, yes. It's 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 not quite as good as the Hellion, but it's real close. So I it's take two. It's the protectors Hellion. Yeah. Um, and actually, like sprint means that it's got some utility that the Hellion often doesn't have, which mm-hmm. is always interesting. Um, and flank being like an area debuff means you can like they, they're they similar, but they, they do do the same job in different ways, which I, I really like about that that comparison.
0: Hmm. The Shadow Rider is real good. I so and uh, I, I know he's listening to this right now, so he's going to get a chuckle out of this. But Eamon, one of my local players that comes and hangs out of my house and plays games. When he first showed up, we both had more units than we could build and paint at the time. So there was a lot of kind of like swapping back and forth. Hey, man, I really, you know, I got another Shadow Sun unit. Oh, I got an extra Lords of Cthulhu unit. Now let's swap. And I saw very selfishly that he had the unit with the Shadow Rider in there. And I was like, "Hey, hey, uh you know you don't want this this is probably trash right like it's just garbage so you know let me just give you And i don't remember what we traded like it was so silly but just reading that card for the first time i was like this is a very powerful model but it's also a very sweet looking model so double win but later on I got to play that model several times against him, and I wonder if, in the back of your mind, Eamon, if you're listening to this, uh, is he thinking, it, hey, I should have never traded you that stupid Shadow Rider.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, as soon as the Shadow Riders came out, they like immediately slotted into my lists, and uh, they were, they were part of Protectors actually getting a unit game, so that was mm-hmm. real nice.
0: Okay, so go on. What else do we got on the Protector side?
1: Uh, so steel shell crabs and sails, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. both Triton units belong in every list. Uh, the sail is there for that, that like sweet, sweet TK. Um, but it's also like a two boost punch. So, and speed six high mobility. So like throwing it up in the midfield, just to like take out a power pod, someone left there or some other low defense piece from another trade, mm-hmm. like is well worth it. And then it can TK itself onto a power point or just sit around and be hazardous and annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big fan there. Um, and then crabs are basically protector crawlers.
0: So let's talk about the roles for those two units. And how many do you run? Because I've seen variants on both of these, all the way from, like, two steel-shell crabs to seven steel-shell crabs. I've seen, like, one side eel and I've seen 3 psi Cy-Eels. Uh, so my, my personal
1: split is uh, three steel-shell crabs and one hmm. side eel Okay. Um, and the reasoning for that is that I typically want one to two crabs that can go out and secure buildings or uh, secure PowerPoints for me and be mm-hmm. that death 4 unkillable unit. Um, and then I, I also still want a couple to pair with another, unit. we'll talk about the bellower uh, mm. in my back line to secure.
0: Definitely. Okay, I, I dig it. Uh, how often does hazardous come up on the yield for you?
1: Very rarely on the eel, but that that's more a a matter of the monsters I play.
0: (laughs) Okay. So what else we got?
1: Uh, So the other units to talk about for the protectors um, are the stalkers, which have just released, and they are awesome. Yes. Um, So they're they're that same kind of squix body with the six defense or the six speed two defense, Um, but they're a punchy unit instead of a disruptive unit, which I really dig. Um, just the, the picking up the, the boost dice against units that are near uh, objective spaces or next to buildings, which is where every building or uh, every unit in the game will typically be,
0: mm-hmm. means
1: that they're always just a 1-2 boost, which like it hits def 2 most of the time, which means they can be my Berserker cleanup, or they can go for... well, the Squix attack is a little bit dicey, um, but they can go for like opposing fast securing units, so they kind of... Mm-hmm. They actually fit the, the fluff for them, where they are that, that unit that's out skirmishing with the other fast stuff.
0: Nice. I think you also briefly touched on the Bellore, and I think that's a good one too.
1: Uh, yeah, just like it's the same body as the Propo Walker. Um, and as soon as they came out, Protectorless have been running two of forever. And I, I cannot say that that should change any time. Just uh, Def 3 with Disrupt is like slightly worse than 4. I think the math is like it's a, a three point six or a yeah. three point seven. Uh, so you're you're doubling up on that unkillable effect, and the way that it pairs with the Def Four body means that that Def Four unit is just unkillable where other units are concerned.
0: Beautiful. I think there's still a few out there. There's still there's still got to be one or one or two more auto includes.
1: Uh, like I'm a big fan of the repair truck. I think that's the advantage yes. protectors have over destroyers right now is that unit access to repair.
0: Nice. So that is one of the things I wanted to talk about is kind of where you stand on the guard units. So I love repair truck, too. One of my favorites. The MR tank is widely debated. This is great. Um, XO armors, very similar to your steel shell crabs.
1: Uh, so I'm a proponent of XO armors. I like a two up in most lists, uh, mm-hmm. although my Cassander lists have been swapping them out for bashers. Um uh, mm. Just for a similar body, but with a twist. Um, the that uncrushable, the immunity to stomp is it doesn't come up too much in my games, uh, but hunker is really valuable.
0: I think it's one of those things that you it, people feel like, oh, this will never come up, but it doesn't come up because your opponent knows it's a bad choice.
1: Yeah, it's it's probably mecha maxim brain. Uh, when I think about like disrupting power bases, I immediately okay. go to swats. Sure. Uh, Stomp is probably the power attack I have used the least overall, Um, although I'm not much of a rampager either.
0: Mm, I think it takes specific monsters, right? So Zysrax is one you do, obviously. Who else do I rampager with a lot? Armadax, I'm, I'm known to rampager a bit with, but it's not every monster that's out there rampaging for sure.
1: Uh, I think it's, it's actually probably a weakness in my game that I don't rampage enough because uh, it's like a super valuable tool for second player. And um, my tendency is instead of rampaging and like forcing the fight a lot of the time, I will uh, just reverse the play and uh, pretend to be first player and go and disrupt their power base in response. Because I've gotten to attack their units with my units, if I send my monsters into their backline, they might start the turn with zero units again.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I like Rampager more, and I use it more on smaller maps. And it's not to say that the maps with the multiple building tiles aren't great for generating tons of power dice, but I find that, like, an early Rampager up the side of Isles of Annihilation, you can put yourself into some real funky positions. And there are some other cross-map plays that you can make while also picking up units and power dice, especially if you find yourself say, on the first turn, I'm in a great position, and I force my opponent to make you know invaluable plays, but now that I'm on your side of the table, you're throwing me into one of your buildings, not one of my buildings. So that's probably a net win for me, especially if it's Armadax, right? Because then he's like, I don't care if you throw me into the buildings, do it. I dare you. Uh, but then the turn after, when you come back to him, he's like, I'll Rampager again, I'll cross the back line of your buildings and your units. And that's when it's like, oh, two Rampagers could completely undermine this game because it kills all of my power dice creation and so those are situations that you have to engineer and it takes some positioning and sometimes bad play on your opponent's part if they lock themselves out so one of my favorite plays talking about units is like when you know your opponent's going to go down to zero units but you stand you they have one unit and you stand next to it and you're like all right now you have to <laughs> remove your own unit to get at me with your monster
1: Oh uh, yeah, and like I said, you're, you're absolutely correct. Correct, like rampage is really useful. Uh, I think it is a weakness in my game that I don't do it more often.
0: Well, and that I one the reason I wanted to bring that up too is because just because one player doesn't do it doesn't mean that it's not something that other players should experiment with more because it may not just be your playstyle, but you're such a good player that if you say I don't rampage her, I know there's gonna be somebody else who's like. I don't Rampager either. Rampagers. Who does Rampagers? You do Rampagers. I don't do Rampagers. Who does Rampagers? Brett doesn't do Rampagers. And so I just want to clear that up that, you know, they're good. They're just not, like, every pack. Because unless you're Zissorax, it doesn't affect a monster. And that's kind of the drawback.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely the drawback. But the way that you can trade up on resources uh, using, like, low red dice high white dice rampages right. to actually like facilitate your gameplay is, is something that can't be overstated like you you need to go so hard for those plays especially if you're trying to trade damage trade aggressively from the second position like you need to get power dice now and rampage or demolisher and rampages are the best way to do it
0: absolutely so we're capping off the units from the protector side but I don't know that we really talked about too many protector monsters and I kind of touched on Armadax. Do you want to touch on some of the protector monsters in the stable?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think that like the two that people are, are most excited about are obviously our two new releases, which is Cassander and Gosmol. Mm, definitely. Um, and I think both are like high tier competitive options right out the gate. Absolutely. Um, so, like, Cassander is, is probably the most efficient monster that we have. Like, Agreed. Tooth and Claw is insane. It just, it reads, uh, I have better improvised weapon, and sometimes it's even better than that. <laughs> uh, so, like, he's great. Uh, his hyper is probably one of the most dangerous 1v1 hypers in the game, between Penetrator on power and Beatback on blast. Huh. Beatback is probably the most powerful trigger. I don't think I'm going to get too much blowback on that. Nope. Um, and then King of Beasts just being a flat plus one boost to faction units is uh, an ability with a huge amount of potential for growth, right? We only have the Basher and Blaster pack, which is, like, good, and I, I would definitely run Bashers right now. I'm a little bit leery on Blasters, uh, just because they typically won't be affecting huge portions of my list. But, like, hmm. as more Mutates come out, that unit only goes up in value.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, but, like, Cassandra himself, I think people might be sleeping on a little bit just because he's he's very vanilla on the front half. But until you, you play and, like, see how insanely efficient he is, it's, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to really grok.
0: I, I think Cassandra may be one of the best new player-friendly monsters, too, for learning the game, learning the dice math, learning the trade. Like, he's... I would absolutely recommend people pick him up.
1: Uh, I agree with you completely. Like... Uh, if if we didn't already have the starter monsters, I would have petitioned to uh, to put him in one of the starters coming up. Like, yeah, definitely. He, he is absolutely the, mon- the kind of monster that I would especially push like uh, a newer player who wants to get competitive towards, because like there's a lot to to figure out there and a lot to learn with that kit, but none of it's really intimidating or um or too esoteric.
0: Mm. So. You mentioned one of my new favorite monsters. I can't get enough of Gossimol. He's basically like Gorgadra because of Annihilate and everything else sweet he does. But just that we finally got a monster with Annihilate and Protectors.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, Annihilate is great. Um, but I actually I compare her more to Ares. Okay, I like that too. Uh, just because like her alpha is all about screen clearing. She's like, you're just—we're not gonna have screens, uh, and I'm and I'm fast, and I'm gonna get up in your face, and I'm gonna make you deal with me. And then she also has Unwieldy. And like, when I first looked at her, I was like, ah, Unwieldy's cute, but like, does it really matter outside of Glob? Mm. Uh, And then playing against her a couple times, I'm like, oh, this is this is problematic—a Def 8 monster that I can't throw. Like, throws are the primary source of damage. This is this is not good
0: unwieldy is the rule that i think is slept on enough in that like like you said throwing is the key component of the game and blue dice is the efficiency that you don't have to pay anything for so killing somebody's blue dice on the throw is the nut punch of nut punches when it's positioned correctly Uh what if the they upp- don't just body slam you instead like you're fine
1: yeah it definitely takes some positioning skill um to get it right but also going up to like def nine unwieldy is uh is nutty uh-huh. Um, but the other thing that i think people miss about unwieldy and steady is that blue dice aren't just efficiency they're also they also kind of like smooth out the rolls they help with consistency because huh. i see attacks made on glob all the time like he was he was been one of my main pairs up until this point and like people will throw the same attack two or three times in a game and like it's a safe attack, but they'll miss one of those often. Sometimes mm-hmm. even two. Like the lack of blue dice is, is like, like I said, it's, it's a consistency issue as well as a uh, an actual efficiency.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How often have you used Constrictor?
1: Uh, so Gossamol is a monster that, like I acknowledge, is powerful. Um, and I played a couple times, but I really didn't enjoy playing. Uh, she she's very defensive in nature. Mm-hmm. Like she wants to take a punch and retaliate better. Uh, which is not typically the kind of monster I reach for. Cassander was much more my speed out of the the two new monsters. Hmm. Um, but I have uh, played against her several times, and Constrictor is real annoying.
0: <laughs> it's when played properly, obnoxious. The extra die is you know one of those efficiency killers, but it's also one of those abilities that if that's the dead ability on her card. So be it like you could take that ability off her card and she'd be fine, but just having it in your back pocket is bonus, especially when your opponent gets down to the trying to make those like what cheeky one dice attacks with their one action dice or like they're being cheeky with like, oh, I'm going to go in and, you know, walk away from you. And you forgot to add that one in, didn't you? You did. Yeah, I see. I got you now.
1: I think the the scarier part about it is uh, I expect her to be very popular in the next event, and I expect to see a lot of people forget that you can't step while well adjacent to her in hyper. Uh, so like if you miscount your steps or misposition an attack, or the the Gossamall player outthinks you and positions correctly, like there are, there will be times where you actually cannot get to Gossamall because you need to step for the last one mm. and you're already adjacent.
0: And that does make alignment tricky. Yeah,
1: and like that's, that's the name of the game for, for monsters attacking monsters, right? It's make alignment complicated.
0: Yeah, well, and it can't be overstated how powerful abilities like Summon or Teleport that can plunk a unit there in front of you. And so being able to really mess with somebody's alignment on top of having options of putting units in the way can make peeling back the layers of getting to Gossamall more difficult than it seems on the surface.
1: Yeah. uh, Like I said, I expect to see a lot of her in the next event, and I expect that to to carry forward. I think she's going to be a competitive staple for a long time. Well,
0: it's Rayquaza. Okay, with
1: that. Yeah, I'm into. too. Um, Another monster I should probably shout out, just because I've been a little down on him lately, and I don't think that's fair, is Pterodax.
0: Okay. Let's talk about that. I've seen uh, pterodax being played more in TTS.
1: Yeah, they, they're t- there's typically like one to two players who will uh, pick him up, but uh, I think he's a monster with like a really high skill floor, if, uh, if that's a term that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, so high skill ceiling as well, but the, the high floor is, I think, the, the problem. Like there's a real barrier to entry in playing pterodax. Uh,
0: okay, okay. So why is that?
1: Because toe is an incredibly complicated ability to use correctly.
0: Mm. so let's talk about using toe correctly then because i think that's something that i have not seen discussed outside of maybe one conversation on tts that i've been in
1: yeah that's right like like i said there's a lot of conversations that kind of happen in voice chat while we're watching games that uh that turn into lost knowledge um so yeah using toe correctly like and i mean i can't really like talk about too much of the specifics of it but like you really have to be able to see the map kind of in a different way because you need to be able to see like where you're standing affects which units you can grab and also which places you can put them because you can Mm. do some really neat things. Like you can force a secure on a building that your opponent wasn't expecting for an upcoming unit turn. Mm. Uh, You can also like create a screen or you can de-screen a friendly screen that your opponent is trying to use. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So like like it's an ability with like a huge number of skill tr- of like decisions to it every turn, which mm. is why I think that there's that floor to entry because really his whole alpha is built around that key component and if you're not using it well, uh then you really should be playing a different monster, right? Why aren't you playing Incinerus in this space or uh Zormaxim or one of the other fast guys?
0: Mm. Well, and that's uh, a really good point too. So you mentioned the skill floor, and it's something that I, I don't I don't know that is even very is is discussed very often, right? We talk about skill ceilings and that you can play monsters forever and get better, but we don't often talk about how hard a monster is to get right on your first couple goes. Or we talked about a bit with Mecha Maxima earlier in this episode and that you feel like you're actively getting worse as you play that monster for a while. And I definitely think Teradax is one of because there's another ability on Teradax's card that we should definitely talk about.
1: Uh, yeah, Airdrop uh, like completely changes the way you have to power you have to power attack. Right. Because uh, right, like we've talked about that gold standard of like the two four six that you want to be using all the time. Um, and Teradax lets you do that in situations where you shouldn't be able to. Right, like. <laughs> a lot of times I'll like come up to an attack and I'm like, man, I've only got 10 power dice and I'm only getting two back from this attack. It's so like, I want to do the six, but I need to get him eight spaces away or seven spaces away. With Teradax, I actually get to like use that efficiency and actually still... So like I'm trading up on resources in like a really abstract way mm-hmm. um, is, is how airdrop works. And like it's super complicated and learning to see it. And then you also have to learn to see 12 spaces away which my brain just doesn't do. I see 10 spaces. Like, he can make power attacks that just should be impossible, which, like, in a couple of different ways, too. Well, let's talk about them We got time. Yeah, sure. Uh, so you can do, like, the 12 spaces like I talked about, but mm-hmm. also, like, if your opponent is starving you on power dice, that they might stand in places uh, where they can be, where they're outside of the double range, just sheer, like, totally on the amount of power that you can generate. Like, I've, I've done this a couple times, and been burned by doing this a couple times, too. <laughs> but, like, you know, if I look at their turn, and I'm like, okay, so they're powering up for one. They're going into the monster turn now, so they'll have five power. So if I stand six away from this double, maybe I can, like, bait them into coming in, or maybe it's a really safe space beyond that double. Um, And if that's the case, like, I'll often stand there, and, like, uh, actually, uh, Ireland, uh, Mike Ireland punished me for that in... Uh, <laughs> in the, the invitational i uh, i took a throw into a double that i definitely didn't need to take
0: if there's somebody that will punish you for making cheeky plays it's definitely mike
1: yeah uh, to, to be fair uh i got to punish him for for a play in that game too that uh, that was the first time i was able to one round an 11 health monster with glob
0: oh shit ow oh you're rude mm.
1: yeah yeah he, uh, he he came in on glob did 3 damage to him So I walked out of the fire, walked into the fire, split, and then went single, (laughs) double, single, and killed Ares.
0: Yeah, that's mean. So, um... We mentioned Pterodax here. It's kind of an honorable mention. Are there any other honorable mentions you think we should stick in this cast? I mean, we have thrown so much good information, but every bit of it has been a nugget of gold, especially if there's anybody out there who is just coming into the game. So let's give them some more gold. I mean, like, keep digging.
1: Uh, sure. So, like, other monsters that I'm, I'm a big fan of in Protectors, um, I think if I tried to get through this cast without talking about Kondo, uh, Boxy would actually, like, find me in real life and shake me. <laughs> Uh, like condo is probably the most unique monster in the game talk about but, that yeah there's there's no one who plays like Kondo. Kondo is uh to to preview another article uh he's an anchor so he's a monster that you will build your list around okay um but unlike a lot of the traditional anchors he's a very defensive anchor he wants to get hit first because you can't effectively uh chain monster attacks into Kondo because of that tantrum in the middle, you a, 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 like a good player will never let you go single into double, because the tantrum shift will pull them out of the double.
0: Mm. That's he, real good.
1: Yeah, so he has like more health than you would think, and his unit game is insane. Assault Apes, with two boost, uh, backed up by Command Apes, is just probably a thing that shouldn't exist.
0: <laughs> it's delicious, and efficient.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, I'll mention this because Nick loves it, even though I am not a fan of units attacking monsters. Uh, Nick kills lots of monsters with Power Lifter. That's so, rude. Yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll often off of a fling too, so you can't escape it. It's uh, doesn't feel great.
0: <laughs> it doesn't feel great. Well, we can't end on not feeling great. So who? <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. He can be a bad experience for somebody who hasn't uh been down that lane especially if you get it all done to you in the same game you're like this was a learning lesson i've been beat up by a monkey but he he's definitely
1: like a top tier protector monster and uh, oh, great. uh we should probably we should probably talk about tharsis uh yes we have danced around the uh one of the best monsters and destroyers um and uh, also oh sorry
0: Oh, and I think that, you know, earlier we briefly touched on um, how the Destroyers don't have a native Repair, and so this is an important, you know, kind of caveat to that conversation.
1: Yeah, because Tharsis has Repair, Um, and, like, I'm not big brain enough to play Tharsis, uh, is what I learned when I watched the really good players play him, because, like, the Repair plays that you can get out of it are just absolutely bonkers. Um, and the way that you can use that to like take over a damage trade is insane.
0: Mm. And he gives Reaper's Repair too, doesn't he? He does. That
1: was actually uh, one of the, the plays I, that blew my mind most recently. Uh, was the player I was watching spawned a Reaper on the unit turn. Just all off on his Lonesome, the whole rest of the map was being played on the other side. And he put one Reaper on, a, on a, a spawn point, walked it up its four spaces, and repaired a, a Hazard into a Rubble. And I was like... Don't know why that play happened. You know, like <laughs> a weird use of dice. Um, and then on the following monster turn, the Tharsis player then used that p- patch of rubble to repair a building, slam a monster into a hazard and a building for four damage when he only would have had access to three normally. and then because that tile was demolished, uh, the opposing player only had a two damage option to put the Tharsis player into. So like it was it was a gigantic trade. And just, like, I didn't see it coming.
0: That's sweet. And the staggered repair is a really neat uh, concept.
1: Uh, Yeah, and since he was also using incombustible buildings, uh, he was able to then continue to to pressure that play.
0: Mm -hmm. Delicious. I think Tharsis is one of those monsters that's independently good and can be thrown into a lot of pairs, because what Tharsis does is what Tharsis does. Yeah,
1: and Tharsis has a little bit of everything that you want, uh, right? Like, he's uh, high mobility and reasonably fast at speed 6. Uh, he's got the, the repair options.
0: Um, armored is really important to his kit, too, in that when you're controlling the buildings and you're manipulating what buildings you can be thrown into or where you can end up, and then you have armored on top of that when you're in hyper. Yeah, the the beatback
1: uh, and armored hyper is, uh, like, it, it sucks to lose repair, but it's well worth it for the trade. Mm.
0: And he's kind of the reverse of Hondo, right? So Hondo loses Armored and Hyper? Yep. And he gets it, and it's, it's delicious.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that monster. He actually, um, I haven't updated the data uh, for the last couple events, but he uh he has the highest win rate in TTS for monsters.
0: Damn,
1: Daniel! Yeah, he, he clocks in at something like 64%. Legit, consistency's good. Yeah, he's a high skill cap, uh, but again, similar to, to Cassandra, absolutely a monster I would point new players towards, because I think growing hmm. with Tharsis can only be good for your development as a player.
0: Absolutely. And to understand the building game that you have to understand to play Tharsis will make you really see the map differently. Uh,
1: yeah. And Tharsis also like kind of brings in one of the other topics I'll be covering in the Tempo article, which is uh, something players don't think about a lot. And it's damage sources. Mm. Tharsis controls what damage sources exist on the board and like where they are, uh, at least through his alpha. Mm. And it also teaches you to kind of, like, map that, which is, like, just a solid game skill to be developing.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, we are in the throes now. We're almost at the hour and a half mark here. So are there any alibis, any closing remarks, any theories or game knowledge that you want to drop on players, any last mind-blowing bits you want to give them before we cut out? Um guess we can try to talk really
1: quick about adaptable versus rigid thinking in mom sure let's do it uh so i'm a huge fan of adaptable thinking in this game i think that rigid thinking will be to your detriment and what i'm talking about there is like um a lot of players who come from some games like war machine especially like you were talking about earlier where like there's Mm -hmm. a very defined meeting point in the middle will come into it with like this is how I play the game. I do X, and then I do Y, and then I do X, and then I do Y. And I think Monpok doesn't reward that kind of thinking. You can't try to plan the game too far in advance. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to like see the board that turn in advance, but not like try to plan it out from turn one. Because the opposing player is endlessly creative, is what competitive Monpok has taught me, and you cannot mm-hmm. plan for what they're going to do.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. So I I think that um, it is more than any other game, a game that lends itself to creativity and uh, unique plays. It's one of the most inspiring things about it is that every time I think I've seen some really sweet play and that's the best play I've ever seen, I see some other sweet play and I'm like, (laughs) there's no end to this. And I just, I absolutely love that aspect of monster apocalypse and it's, a step away from what riot quest is so i also play riot quest and one of the hard things about riot quest is from the first activation to the last activation the every round changes so drastically based on the back and forth deshi- decisions that you and your opponent make that planning anything to even the end of the round is a nightmarish decision tree but with Monster Apocalypse, you can go relatively far into what you think is going to happen, and there's still a lot of variance because of all of the options available to you. So it's a nice middle ground between, like, in War Machine, most of the threats are very projectable. You see where everything is going to stand, you know where the speed is, you can guess the approximation of where things are going to clash. And In Riot Quest, there's almost no guarantee that a model's even going to be there by the time it comes around to its activation. And now in Monster Apocalypse, you get somewhere in between. There's lots of decisions and things happening and changing, but it's very chess-like in that you can kind of assume if I stand here, my opponent's going to throw me there. That's the most optimal play for them. And then there's room for creativity in that they'll say, well, yeah, I can throw you there, or I can throw you here and here and make it much worse for you. And so... Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder, but Oh no, you just like
1: reframed my terrible ramblings there into something much much more coherent. Um Yeah, I like everything you said is absolutely correct. Um but I I think I I see it especially in like some of the players I brought with me from Magic, where they'll be Mm -hmm. locked into like really rigid thoughts where like I do this each game and then Because I Mm. secure these two buildings, I take these two power points, and then I attack these specific points because my opponent will always take those points. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, that's just not how Monpok works. What buildings you can secure, what power points you can get your hands on, um, what safe power is going to be entirely based on the context of, like, how did the building draft go? What Mm -hmm. monsters did your opponent bring? How did they deploy them? What have they been doing with their
0: units? How did that first turn unfold? Like, that has drastically changed. I've gone into so many games going, this is exactly what I'm going to do. And then my opponent does, like, something crazy on the first turn and very aggressive or very defensive. And I'm like, this drastically changes my decision making. I can no longer do the one thing I normally do. And that's been true almost every game I go into it. And so that's that's when you know the, the competitive aspect of it is infinitely deep.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's a game that really rewards the ability to adapt quickly to changing mm. situations.
0: Definitely. Um, well, speaking of adapting quickly and changing situations, we're about to change it up on you again. Um, you've gotten lots of Riot Quest content. You've gotten lots of Pac, uh talk lately. But uh, Field of Fire is moving forward into a new phase of what we're doing next there's going to be a lot more diversity. We're going to start having authors, just like Brett, drop articles that will be about whichever content that they're hap- they happen to be passionate about. So with Brett, it's definitely going to be some Monsterpocalypse content, uh, but Mr. Mallorian's also coming over to Field of Fire, and he's going to start doing uh, Field of Fire, Fuel the Flame, and it's going to be all about pulling in people and their passion projects and talking to people in the community. And we're going to start potentially doing YouTube content. And then as a, a cherry on top to all the Monsterpocalypse content, myself and Brett and some of the other Monpoc players, I've also got several of the other content creators involved making a Monsterpocalypse radio play the same way we have for the Riot Quest radio play. And this one is nothing against my Riot Quest show because that it has been so awesome and so fun to make. But anytime you do something, you get better the second time you do it. And being able to have learned all those lessons and then apply them to a new show has been exceptional. Um, the storyboarding, the uh, world that Apocalypse lends itself to, if you like kaijus, if you're a Godzilla fan, any of those things, you're going to love the show. And it's going to give you some immersion. We end up having a lot of... Um, things to listen to while we paint or while we play that gives us information. But this will just give you some fun, relaxing entertainment to sit down. Uh, We're going to explore, you know, our own lore. We're going to write it up. And I'm going to tell you we're going to cover a ton of factions in the first season. Um, And I'm super excited for that to drop. So stay tuned in. Follow Field of Fire on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, I don't have an Instagram yet, but I'm sure I need to get an Instagram. Um, We're also on Discord, anywhere that you can reach out to us. If there's content that you want to be hearing, feel free to reach out. Um, I have a very responsive tag on Facebook, and I'm very proud of it because anybody who sends me a message that day, if I can get back to you, I'm going to let you know whatever it is that you asked about. And I get all kinds of questions. Hey, what do you think of this list? Uh, Where should I go for content? Uh, What's going to be your next episode? And I want to also plug in more community members to what I'm doing. So if you're out there, if, you know, bless Power Gorge TV, they basically hold up the content meta, uh, all on their own sometimes. But if you're out there and you want to get involved, whether it's the monster apocalypse radio show, whether you want to write articles, if you want to do YouTube content, reach out to me. Uh, Field of Fire is going to be a home for new artists, uh, people who are just budding into the community, uh, long-time veteran artists who are looking for fresh content or to do something new and people who want to be part of something a bit bigger than just uh themselves if you want to Grow past being an individual blogger and join our writing team. We write scripts. We do creative writing on a whole different level, uh, on almost a professional level once we're in the writing room. So I encourage all of you to get out there and reach out to the community because that's what it's about. That's why we do this radio show. It's why we do this is because we want to give back to the community as much as possible. Because there wouldn't be a game without it. Brett and I could be the best players, most fun players. most awesome players to play in the whole world. But if nobody's playing, then it's a dead game. And so we only get more players in it by having more content to digest. And the world's wide open. You know, the game's only been around for a couple of years. And like Brett said at the beginning, when he first came in, there just wasn't a ton of content out there. And there's a lot more now, but there could be even more. And War Machine's grown a lot over the last year. We got Brawl Machine going now. War Table's taken off. You can be involved in any of that. You want to talk about hobby articles. I love hobby stuff. I post a new painted model every week on Field of Fire's Facebook page. And I would love to get more painters involved. I want to get people who want to talk about, uh, you know, how they magnetize models. I want to get people who talk about how they airbrush, you know, and do just so much overwhelming positive content that we drown the community in it. Just drown them in fire.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be part of it, and uh, hopefully we can, we can really blow up the Monpaw community and the Field of Fire community. Get lots Definitely. Of fire. Lots of eyes I- and lots of
0: creators. I'm super excited to have you, and it's an honor to have you a part of the team. And I know that the listeners and the members of our community are also excited, so this is going to drop 2021, and we are starting out with a big bonfire so come on join in and uh also don't forget to go and read brett's introduction uh, article he's going to tell you a little bit more about himself you got to hear plenty of him here you get to see his face Uh, he's quite handsome i'm not gonna lie a little jealous of his muscles (laughs) so you'll get all that in a bag of chips so tune in
1: please check out my content and uh Check out anyone else on the the Field of Fire network. I know there's some uh, some other great articles coming up. hmm
0: hmm Definitely. Vicarious has got some right on the heels of yours. I'm super excited for this stuff to drop. So, you want to take us out, say goodbye? Sure. Uh, bye, everybody. Relax on.